Hi, everyone. It's Sharon Moore, your host. This is a powerful episode you're about to hear with my guest, Hope Edelman. She shares with us her story. She shares with us her grief around losing her mother at age 17 and then her father at the age of 40 and how that loss shapes the rest of her life. I was deeply moved by something she shared. She said that at one point in her life, she shifted away from wanting to be exceptional and into wanting to be helpful. And helpful she is. She has devoted her life to grief education and support. She has more than a million readers and has impacted countless people as they navigate their own journey of grief and loss. So from exceptional to helpful, here she is, Hope Edelman. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right, welcome back, everybody. So today I'm joined by Hope Edelman. She is an author of over six books, including New York Times bestsellers, Motherless Daughters and Motherless Mothers. Her recent book is called The After Grief, and we'll hear a little bit about that in a couple minutes. Hope has been in the bereavement field for over 25 years, has a long list of awards, has been published in publications including New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Real Simple, and CNN, just to name a few. She is a facilitator of retreats and support groups and is a life coach. This is just the tip of the iceberg, my friends. I'm so happy to learn more. Hope, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sharon. Pleasure to be here. So I have a ton that I want to hear about you, but of course, this is the Hoffman Podcast. So let's start there. When did you do the process? What led you to do the process? I did the process in the summer of 2015. I think I was there the first week of August. It was right before my older daughter started college. And my sister had done the process a few years earlier and had really been encouraging me to do it myself. But it took that transition into um, my first child leaving the nest for me to really um, decide, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm ready. It's time for me to go. I remember calling up and talking with um, someone in the office and just sobbing my way through the entire conversation and saying, do you think this is, I should come before or after my daughter leaves for college? And the agreement that, and it made sense was you should go before it will put you in better shape to say goodbye to her when she goes. So I think I came the very beginning of August. Wow. Was there, um, a pivotal moment or a magical moment that you remember from the process? Oh, there were so many. I think for me, it was, we did a counting circle. We had a large group. There were 40 people in my cohort and we were all in. I remember the instructors saying, wow, this is amazing because all 40 of you are all in. 
And we did a counting circle near the end where we said, you know, we sat in a circle and we, we uh, counted and said our ages out loud. And I was 17 when my mother died and I had always felt that a part of me was stuck in the past. When we counted, I think at the time I was 51 and I should have stopped counting at 51. But when I got to 17 in my mind's eye, I took the hand of that 17-year-old self and I walked with her all the way up to 51. And it was such a powerful moment. You know, it was it was spontaneous. The instructors had not, you know, told us to do that or told us that might happen. It just happened all on its own. And after we were done that evening, I remember feeling like, wow, you know, I actually feel like a grown-up, maybe for the first time ever, and left Hoffman feeling like I was integrated again. It was intense. It's interesting hearing you say that as a teacher, I know we, I know exactly the moment you're talking about and you all are in a visualization. So I don't often know what happens for people on the receiving end, but to hear that you got to take the hand of the 17 year old who lost her mother and bring her to the 51 year old. Wow. Mm-hmm. And brought her right up there so that she could grow up and and we could leave, you know, whatever was back there in the past, stuck at that age, we could leave that behind or bring it with us. You know, we could mature it, I think, is more what happened. Yeah, it was very powerful. And I use that, I use that that exercise now with that recommendation in the retreats that I lead for motherless daughters. And they always say it's a very, very powerful moment to either lift up that young child and carry her or take the older child by the hand or put their arm around, you know, the young adult and carry her with them. And in your retreats, when you use it, is it, is it specifically the age that they lost their mother? Yes. Although some of them might say that in, spontaneously the year the mother was diagnosed or some other traumatic event in their life will come up instead. It's really whatever age they got stuck at is the age that tends to, you know, show up in their imagination when they're doing that visualization. Walk me through, here you are, a 17-year-old, you lost your mom. I can imagine that was one of the most traumatic moments of your life. And here you are today helping so many others who have gone through this. What was your journey like going from your own grief to switching gears into how do I help others? Mm, Well, you know, I was raised by a woman, my mother, who though I only had 17 years with her was very committed to volunteerism. And so volunteering and helping others was always a part of my upbringing. I, you know, I was, did a lot of community service in high school also in college. And I was in graduate school. I bet you didn't think Bruce Springsteen was going to figure into this story, Sharon, but he does. Hey, that's a fun surprise. Are you a Springsteen fan? Because we're all Springsteen fans out there. Um, I was in graduate school and I had not talked much about losing my mom, but I was in a course in portraiture. I was in a nonfiction writing program, University of Iowa, and a visiting professor was there and she was teaching the course. And our task was to choose a single person, preferably someone we had never met and did not know well, and research them for the course of the whole semester and write a portrait of them that dug beneath the superficial details and got into like what that person really represented as a cultural icon. So I chose Bruce Springsteen because his music had been so influential during my adolescence. I grew up in New York, just over in the New Jersey border. And my little pocket of the the Eastern Seaboard was listening to his music long before most of the rest of the country even knew who he was. 
So I started writing about Bruce Springsteen, and then I found that um, my high school boyfriend started showing up in the essay because he'd been a really avowed Springsteen fan, and we had had a, a very tumultuous relationship. And I met him, in fact, right after my mother died, or soon after my mother died, and really latched on to him as a, like an anchor. And I started writing about our relationship, and then I started writing about my mother's death for the first time. And I remember going to the professor and saying, look, I'm not really writing a portrait of Bruce Springsteen anymore, so should I drop the class? Or should I, you know, like, should I back up and start over again? What should I do? And she said, no, keep writing. And in that conversation, I said to her, you know, I've been looking for a book about early mother loss, because I had been all of those years, and I'd never found one that assumed that, you know, a woman could be anything other than 35 plus when her mother died. And so I said to her, I've been looking for that book, uh, you know, for 10 years. And she said, well, why don't you write it? And I said, because I'd never thought of that. And she said, no, you can do it. And she said, and I'll help you because I was 21 when my mother died and I took care of her at the end. And I know there's a need for that book. So she mentored me. Um, and I started writing the book, and the book had such an enormous reception when it first came out. I mean, it was like hundreds of people would show up at bookstores, and I got mail sacks of letters at the um, post office. You know, I like carried it over my shoulder like Santa, brought, bringing it back to my apartment. It was crazy. And um, from that, I started a nonprofit, started helping women form support groups. And so the book was really the transition between losing my mom and then offering services to women because I had really just wanted to write about the experience and I had no idea the book would be received the way that it was. It's still my best-selling book, even though it's the first of eight that I've written. And yeah, I mean, I really thought, you know, who's going to buy this book? I mean, probably a couple hundred women and my grandma will buy a hundred copies. And, and, but that's not what happened. I mean, it really had an enormous reception, a beautiful reception and, and, and spawned two more books, which was Letters from Motherless Daughters and Motherless Mothers. And I think of the After Grief, my newest book, as Motherless Daughters for Grownups, because it's about finding your way on the long arc of loss. What will that, what will a major loss look like? Or how will it show up in your life 10, 20, 30 years later? Last week was the 40th anniversary of my mother's death. Actually, it was just on Monday. It was this week. Monday was the 40th anniversary of my mother's death. And I still think about her all the time. It's not, it's not something I got over or got past or put down. I mean, she's with me every day, as I think she should be. She was my mom. Where, where were you on your own grief journey when you wrote this book? I mean, Suddenly, you have written this book. You've got hundreds of people who are interested. Where were you on your journey at that point? Well, at that point, I was in a pretty good place. Um, I spent the first seven years after she died not talking about it at all. If anyone even mentioned my mother, my heart would start beating fast and my limbs would go numb. And I only realized many years later, that's a trauma response. That's a somatic trauma response. I never processed the trauma of losing her because the last week or two of her life was so intense and I was there for all of it. And um, so, but when I was about 24, and this was back, let's see, this would have been back in the 1980s. I turned 24, I was in, in that year, and I broke an engagement with a man, my, high, my college boyfriend who I'd been engaged to. I guess I was about 23, 24. But I was also seeing 
my friends, my peer group, start having more woman-to-woman relationships with their mother and relating to her in a more adult way. And, and I, I missed my mother in a whole new and different way because she wasn't there to do that with. And I didn't have anyone in my life, you know, as a substitute. And I was really grieving the loss of this engagement beyond the point where, frankly, I think I should have been grieving the loss of the engagement. And I realized this is really more about losing my mom. And there, I don't know if there was a Hoffman process back in the 80s, was there? But there wasn't where I was living in Knoxville, Tennessee, or I'd never heard of it. And I wouldn't have had the funds to attend or the ability to travel. But back in the 1980s, the, you know, sort of like the buzzword was codependency. And everything was lumped together as codependency, including grief. And so I went to um, something similar to the Hoffman process in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a week-long intensive workshop for codependency. And there were several people in my group who had lost parents when they were young. And we did bashing and we did experiential exercises. We did empty chair work. And that really helped me a lot. So by the time I started writing this book, I had done some of that work um, around the death of my mom. I had really gotten over some of the anger that I felt toward her, a lot of the resentment toward my father for how he handled it and not telling the children she was sick or dying so that we experienced it, you know, as a very sudden shocking loss. So by the time I started writing the book, I think I was pretty right size. And I started by just doing interviews. That's what my professor had suggested. She said, just go out and find people to interview. So I interviewed people. I sat, traveled around on a bicycle with my tape recorder in several different cities. I was in New York. I was in Iowa City. I was in Chicago for a summer. And I just collected stories. And I had been a journalist, so I knew how to interview. And I was a good interviewer. And I was interested in what they had to say. So I just collected stories. And through those stories, the book came into focus. And I felt like, oh, I found my people. Like they're telling my story over and over and over again. And I found that to be an incredibly healing experience too, because it validated so much of what I had felt and thought over the years. So hearing you say, I found my people, was there, um, how did your belonging to this world, to your family, to yourself, like, what was that like having lost your mom at such an early age? That was life-changing for me because I had felt for so long that I was alone, that the only other person I knew who had lost a mom really was my sister. There was a girl in my neighborhood, actually two girls in my neighborhood. Our moms had been friends and their mom had died of cancer, breast cancer also, about a year before my mother did. But I wasn't friendly with them. They were not exactly my age. That matters a lot when you're a kid. (laughs) But meeting all these other women of all different ages, who had lost mothers to many different causes, of all races and religions and ethnicities and cultures, helped me feel like, this is a thing. This is real. Like What I was feeling was not that I didn't grieve right or that I was having trouble getting over it. We're all in the same place, and there's a different normal for us. And, and I found that to be enormously healing, and that's part of why I started support groups in New York City, where I was living when the book came out, because so many women were writing to me wanting to meet other women. They had never spent time in the company of other women who had lost their moms. And their story, like mine, was, I'm all alone. Nobody understands me. Nobody can really appreciate what I've been through. And we see at the Motherless Daughters retreats that I lead, and we're just about to start doing in-person ones again. I'm really excited about that. 
the first night that we all get together, it's a Thursday evening, typically 22 to 26 women sitting in a circle. Nobody knows anybody else in the circle. And they've, most of them have come there with this narrative that they're alone and nobody has understood them for most of their lives or much of their lives. And as we go around the circle and the women introduce themselves and say why, why they chose to come to this retreat at this particular point in their lives, you watch the other women in the circle, you watch their faces change, you know, like their countenance, their bodies soften. And you watch their stories change in real time because they're not going to be able to say, after this weekend, nobody understands me. I'm all alone. Because now they have 25 other women who do understand them and they bond in a way that's so beautiful. They spend only four days together, but they stay together. They Every group gets a Facebook page. They continue to communicate. They have reunions. There are follow-up retreats for graduates and they'll come and meet women from the other retreats. And it's just an incredible community that's building. I'm, I'm so humbled and I'm so grateful to take a part in that because now on Tuesday evenings, every week, I I lead an online support group for anywhere between 60 and 70 women show up every Tuesday. There was about 130, 140 women who are in the community. And we talk about a different topic every week that's of interest uh, to motherless daughters or to any adult who lost a parent young. We have a guest speaker once a month and the women get a chance to share their stories and find other women whose stories are similar to their own and um, they're, they're coming back month after month. Um, it's really, it's really gratifying to watch this happen. And this, this, the, the fact that you help women who have this unique trauma and loss, and therefore a narrative that tells them I am all alone, find community, find commonality, find support. What a gift. What a gift. You know, most of the time, Sharon, people say to me, wow, it must be so amazing to, to, you know, to know that you're changing lives. And, and I say, actually, it's my job. You know, I get up in the morning. It's what I do. It's how I pay my bills. Most of the time, I just think of it as my work. But if I step outside and I look and I think about the impact that that work has had, it really still brings me to tears. Again, I feel so grateful for being able to do that and so humbled because it's not me, you know, I'm just a conduit for, and, and you know, I say to the women at the retreats, you know, 80% of what I do is book the place and register you, you know, and organize the food and get you here. The real magic is what happens when they start interacting with each other. So I, I, I book the site and I create the framework for the weekend, but the magic is really what happens between them. And so where did you learn to facilitate? Where did you learn to be, I mean, you started as, you know, I I understand that writing has been one of your vehicles. That is something you you were involved in from a young age. That evolved into so much more. How how did that happen? Well, Hoffman played a big role in that. Um, I was a writer and I taught writing workshops and facilitating writing workshops was really, you know, for more than 20 years was the best training I found for working with groups because I was teaching memoir classes. So people were coming to share their stories and put them up, you know, for discussion and workshop and revise them. 
And so we were doing some really deep work in rewriting your narrative, because as people revise their story on the page, we would often see shifts happening in their perception of themselves and their identity starting to shift. That was happening in the writing workshop. And, and I had led support groups in New York City for a while, and I was trained out here by a grief center to lead children's groups. So I had some facilitation experience, but I went to Hoffman because I needed a big change in my life. I mean, that's right. That's the whole reason that, that, that people go to Hoffman when you're ready for change. And I had to wait till I was ready for change. And then I was ready. But I really felt like um, my work was stagnating, that it was all fine and good to write books and essays. And it's my core competency. It's my talent. It's my love. But it wasn't really earning me a living anymore. The publishing industry had changed so much. And I wasn't feeling gratified by you know not being able to support myself in or you know my family in the way that I wanted to and so I went to Hoffman just feeling like I need to make some kind of change and I came out of Hoffman deciding I'm going to become a coach so I did the Martha Beck life coaching program and then I did her certification program and then I started working with creative clients and bereavement clients one-on-one and started leading retreats the year after Hoffman actually um, I signed up for the coaching program like right out of the gates from Hoffman. I think I started like it left in August, maybe started it in October. And by the following summer, I came together with a partner and conceived of the first motherless daughters retreat. And by the summer of 2016, we were leading them. So that happened very quickly. And I don't know. I think just naturally, I'm I stepped into the space where I could do that when I was much younger. I don't think I gave myself the authority. I don't think I had the authority or the experience or the insight to really be in the position of elder that I think really lends itself to being a facilitator of this type of group. The retreats are multi-generational and workshops. I mean, women come ranging in age from their early to mid-20s all the way up to their late 70s. And that's one of the beauties of it is that the women learn so much from each other because they're at different points in their lives. But in order, I think, to have credibility to women of that wide age range, I needed to come into my own. You know, I needed to step into my own maturity. And that didn't really happen, I think, for me personally, until my 50s, because my 40s were so focused on raising my own children. I have two daughters. I remember talking with a friend. Actually, we were at a conference, a friend of mine who's a writer. He's about my age. We were on a panel together at a writing conference. And he was talking to the group and he was reading from an essay and he was talking about being a writing instructor and he's and, and a writer also. And he said at a certain point in his life, he made a shift from wanting to be exceptional to wanting to be helpful. And I thought that was such a beautiful, simple statement. And I thought, yes, that's exactly how I feel. You know, I was full of ambition in my 30s and 40s. It was really about me and my ego. And then it just became about everybody else and leaving a legacy. And, you know, what What good can I do in the world? So, yeah, I shifted from wanting to be exceptional to wanting to be helpful. And that all happened around the time that I went to Hoffman. And that's been, you know, the past six years of my life has really been guided by that principle. What would you say is one of your uh, bigger challenges on this professional path? Um, it's wanting to do too much at the same time. You know, I'm like an idea factory. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to train people to lead support groups. I want to create affinity groups. Uh, You know, I want to be bringing the work to Australia. And, you know, it's, 
it's harnessing me <laughs> or corralling me, you know, into a manageable space. And fortunately, now I have a really amazing team of women who help me do that. I have a programming and events director who's so organized and practical and, you know, keeps me on track and a marketing coach who helps me, you know, with the bigger picture. So I've got someone helping me with the macro and the micro because I'm an idea person. If you're at all familiar with human design, I'm a manifester and a generator, but I'm mostly a manifester. So, you know, I'm good with the ideas and um, I can make things happen, but I'm really good at, at dreaming things into being. And then I need help around me and I need to learn how to delegate and not micromanage to let that support help bring things into being. I can't be a, a one woman enterprise anymore, or I'm going to have to stay small. So maybe that's it. It's not really personal as much as it is sort of professional and practical. I guess the biggest personal obstacle for me has always been overcoming fear of criticism. And I've really worked on that myself a lot to the point where I can get angry emails from dissatisfied customers or irate readers and it used to really cut me to the bone, you know, to get criticism like that or sometimes personal attacks. It doesn't happen often at all, but I can really let it roll off my back now and think, poor thing, what pain a person must be in to send that kind of email to a stranger. How did you get there? Um, my coaching program, Hoffman, maturity. Yeah. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yeah. Okay, good. So it is true that for me, at least as a woman, once I passed 50, I ran out of f***s to give. I really just had to stop caring about what people thought of me or because I realized that I was limiting myself and I didn't want to be limited anymore. And this has been a decade of really letting go of a lot of the old messages that were boxing me in, letting my children, letting go of my children and watching them fly, you know, and, you know, spread their wings. Um, my, my youngest one left for college last September, letting go of my marriage, which had stopped working. And one of the reasons I went to Hoffman was really wondering what to do about that. Came back, committed to giving it another try. Uh, we lasted a little while longer, but letting go of my marriage. And now the big one is I'm about to let go of my home of 24 years. I don't know where I'm going to be living in a couple of months, but I have faith that I won't be homeless. Something will come along. It always does. I think just, you know, having more faith in myself, right? And, and, my, and having building more confidence in myself and my own competence was how I got there. But Hoffman played a big part in that. And I don't know why this is coming to me, but I see you as this person who is writing books and leading workshops and coaching. And I got this, like, what's it like at the top? Like, is it lonely at the top? Where do you get your sense of community and belonging since this is all kind of you running the show? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. You know, I've been interviewed by hundreds and hundreds of people. No one's ever asked me that question. So thank you for asking that because I think it's important. I have a really incredible network of friends, who some of whom date all the way back to junior high or even earlier. I've, I'm a collector of people, and I stay in touch with people, and social media has made that even easier. But 
I, and, and during COVID, because I couldn't see so many of the, those friends and couldn't travel as none of us could. I mean, I separated right before COVID because timing is everything. And it was just, it was just not easy, I have to say, to, and maybe some listeners have had the same experience, to go through you know, the end of a 23-year marriage without the support of my girlfriends in person. And they were wonderful about calling and texting and Zooming with me, but it's not the same thing, you know, as being able to just go out for dinner together or go line dancing and have fun or whatever it is, you know, that I would have been doing or traveling or having them come in and fly in and stay with me from other states. But there were about four female friends here in Los Angeles who were limiting their social contact in a way that we all felt comfortable with, who I did see on a fairly regular basis. And those women became my lifeline. And going from having friendships that were very wide, but kind of shallow, honestly, to having a couple that were incredibly deep, who I can go to for anything and come to me for anything now, to discover that at this age, you know, in the midst of a public health crisis, right, and a cultural national crisis, was really quite something. It was one of the blessings for me of the past year, even though there was also a lot of loss and hardship, so I think that, you know, my, my female friends have been really, really important to me. And, you know, I spend a lot of time alone in front of a computer. I'm sitting in my office now. It's a one-room shop, you know, it's just me in an office. And I'm grateful that social activity, you know, is coming back because when I spend all day alone, I don't want to go home and be alone. So I, and now that my kids have moved out, I spend a lot of time with those girlfriends. And, and I'm re-entering the dating world, which is a whole thing of its own. Did you all hear that? She's re-entering the dating world. Oh boy. Dating in your fifties. Uh, yeah. It's, it's an, it's an experience. Yeah. But you know, the hope is that people have followed the similar journey and they've let go of the bullshit and you're getting the real deal. That's the hope. That's the hope. That's, that would be actually true if we had a Hoffman dating app, but that is not, that is not true for most people out there. I am, I'm sorry to report, but, but some, but some for sure. It's not the first time we've heard a request for a Hoffman dating app. Yeah. I, it's interesting. I couldn't, that, that just came to me intuitively thinking about your, I can tell just from your voice and what you've overcome and what you've done with that. You know, there are people who stay in their trauma or who can't move on. And instead, what did you do? You not only processed it, you channeled that into how do I help people? And boy, have you, right? I don't know how many, maybe tens of thousands at this point, hundreds of thousands of people that you have impacted through your work. It's, it's something else. And then something in me said, but wait, are you in this room by yourself? And what do you, how do you get, how do you get fueled? How do you get filled? How does your soul fill up? How do you get taken care of since you're so busy taking care of others? That's a really good question. I mean, self-care is kind of, I feel like, an overused term because I always think, oh, that means like scented candles and bubble bath, but that's not it. To me, self-care is really, you know, taking care of all of the dimensions of the self, right? It's taking care of the quadrinity. It's the spiritual self. It's the, um, so I meditate and do yoga. I wish I could say I do it every day. I don't, but I do it, you know, pretty regularly. Um, I give myself a lot of downtime. I've created a schedule for myself where my heavy work days are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday and Friday are much lighter. And I try to not work too much on the weekends, if at all. It's getting increasingly harder because everyone works, you know, seven days a week now. And it is, you know, people have the expectation that if you get a work email on a Saturday, you'll respond. But um, I do work in a lot of downtime and exercise time. But 
I really, I love being of service. To me, sitting down for an hour on a weekend and answering emails from readers doesn't feel like work. You know, it, it, it actually feels like a joy because I know that they're going to be so happy to hear back. People can't believe that I answer emails and I think, why not? I'm a human being with a computer. Why wouldn't I answer emails? You know, and, and I don't get an overwhelming number of them. You know, I, it backs up, but every now and then I'll sit down and I'll catch up because I feel like that human touch is so important, especially the girls, the teenage girls who write to me. Really important, you know, because I didn't have anyone to write to when I was a teenager. So these young women, the teenagers, the college students, I make sure to always write back to them. Does it feel like your your work and your steps around grief are relevant or transferable to times of transition, to loss of any kind, whether it's a loss of relationship not due to death or loss of, you know, are these are these transferable steps that you have? Sure. Yeah, because whenever we go through a big change, there's loss that occurs, even if it's a change that we want, even if it's a change that we're excited about. You know, I remember I was, I couldn't have been more excited to go to graduate school for writing. It had been my dream. But to do that, I had to leave my home in Tennessee and my friends there. And I was sad about that, you know, and the attachments that I had formed there had to be loosened or let go of in order for me to step into the next chapter of my life. And and I'm finding absolutely that what I write about in the aftergrief with regard to death is is also what I'm experiencing going through a divorce and empty nesting as well. So any kind of big life transition. I'm considering that my next book might be about how to navigate the liminal spaces because you don't typically step from one stage right into another. It's not like the threshold is, you know, like a door where you're just stepping literally from one room into the next. There's usually, it's not, purgatory has kind of a negative connotation, but there usually is like a, a DM a DMZ, you know, in there where you're just kind of hanging out and getting your bearings and making, maybe making plans for what's going to come next or waiting for it to be revealed to you. And that's asking people to live with ambiguity. And as humans, I think we have a lot of discomfort with ambiguity or uncertainty. And I think that's a lot of what we saw in this past year. I mean, we just went through a whole year or more of liminality between the time the COVID epidemic was first you know, announced and the lockdowns occurred. And we discovered that these vaccines were going to be successful or efficient and they became disseminated. It was about a full year. You know, it was pretty much March to March roughly depending on you know what state or country you lived in but and and other countries still obviously are having a much harder time than the united states but as i'm talking mainly about in the us we had a year of liminality where we did not know what the future was going to hold when we might get certain elements of the past back we were living in an, in an eternal present tense for quite a while and um we didn't really have the tools for that as a culture that's a nice way to say what we just went through. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Where I was going to just kind of close out was just this, um, what I'm seeing is you, you started Hoffman because you were in a time of transition. Your work happened because you were in a time of transition. You're currently in a time of transition. Um, like you said, with the kids and the house and the marriage, and you get to fall back on all the things that you teach. It's true. And, you know, as you say that, I'm thinking about something that has been very true to me. I was talking to a neighbor the other day, an older woman, she's just turned 75. And I was saying, you know, as I'm shedding all these layers of the past 23 years, the marriage, the kids are moving out, the house, 
I feel more like I did it, like I did at 28 than I have in almost any time since I was 28. It's like I've stripped away, you know, these layers and, and gotten back to this essential self. And I think that that's the self I always know in that space of liminality. I remember in graduate school once, someone, one of my colleagues or one of the fellow students was reading from, actually she was reading, it was that portraiture course again. God, that's the gift that keeps on giving. She was reading a portrait of someone and it was actually someone that she knew. And there was a, a line in it that said, when you fall in love with someone on their way from one place to another, you fall in love with someone who doesn't exist. And I, it was one of those statements that's so poetic, it sounds like it must be true. And, you know, the romantic 20-whatever, seven-year-old in me thought, oh, that's so poignant. Of course, that, that I don't think that's true, actually. You know, the more I live, the more I think. When you meet someone who's on the way from one place to another and they're living in that liminal space, at least this has been true for me, Sharon, I'm more myself than I am when I'm in either of those bookmarks, you know? I'm more myself in that space, stripped when everything else has been stripped away. And I'm standing there in that place of uncertainty, wondering what's going to go next, discovering how much agency I'm going to have over it, how much will be fate, how much will be, you know, determined by external circumstances, how much I can dream it into being. I feel like I'm more myself than I am at any other time in my life. And, and that's where I am right now. So I think maybe that's why I feel more like I was who I was at 28 than at any other time. I don't know why I picked 28 when I was talking with her, maybe because that was a, you know, that was another really liminal space, I guess, because I was leaving graduate school. I was moving to New York. I was about to write my first book, but I think we were talking in terms of dating. So maybe that's why I thought that. Well, I like what you're saying. And, and I think this would be a nice place to, to pause and, and, and kind of bring to our uh, interview to a close is rewriting. You talk about narrative rewriting, right? Or I don't remember how you say, it. and um, that saying that she said, when you meet somebody in transition and you fall in love with them, you're actually not falling. Actually, maybe you're falling in love with their essential selves. Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. I believe that a lot of what happens, you know, when they're when we're in when we're when we're living with a label, I think um, is that that's our social self. That's the mask, oftentimes, that we put out to the world. And I feel like in this liminal space, we are less masked, and sometimes even maskless. We're often more vulnerable and more impressionable, but also sometimes more fierce more fiercely protective of, of who we really are. And I think that's a beautiful place to be. I think we should celebrate that and not be afraid of it. I think I just figured out what my next book is, Sharon. Thank you. Please share. Well, I think it's probably going to be about learning how to you know, live with liminality, maybe in navigating the transitional zones. And viewing it as, a, you know, just even rewriting this quote is a total mindset shift of, oh, this is positive. I'm actually, here I am as my essential self, meeting you as your essential self, because we're both in a time of transition or whatever it might be. Hope Edelman, thank you so much for being here. You are such an inspiration, doing amazing work in the world. I love this idea of going from exceptional to helpful. It is truly what you have embodied in your life. Thank you for sharing with us. And uh, she's on the market, my friends. She's on the market. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. I am always happy to do anything for Hoffman. It was a game changer for me, as I know it was for so many. 
Perfect. Thank you, Hope. And goodbye, everybody. We'll see you all in a week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.